Welcome to this worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is January the 17th. Uh, pointing out some announcements. Uh, flower calendar is in the back if you would like to sign up to dedicate some of our altar flowers in memory or in uh, honor of someone. Please sign up. There's lots of spaces available still. I think the one other announcement that I have here, just double checking through. Uh, there is a thank you note from Inspiration Hills. I urge you to take a look at it. It's in the back of the announcements. Uh, from the Education Committee, we are looking forward to a time when we can have Sunday school classes. If you feel led to teach a Sunday school class, hold junior worship, or work in the nursery, please let Christian Ed Committee know. Hopefully we can get back to a normal worship experience at the church we love so much soon. So if you are interested, please let worship committee know. I believe um, Becky, you are the chair of that right now? Yes, Becky is the chair. Sorry, say it one more time. With Clara Jean and Don Connor. In the back right now is, and I hope it's still there, a copy of the, the directory for 2021. If you have not yet checked it, please check it this week before you leave to make sure that your information in there is correct so that we can get the final one finished up um, and put out. If you want to double check for anyone else, please go ahead and double check. Uh, every year, it, it, we, we end up having people's uh, addresses, phone numbers, things change as the year goes, and we just want to make sure we get that right. And inevitably, there's also some typos, and just trying to alleviate the number of those so that when we put it out, it's as close to correct as possible. Are there any other announcements you wish to share today? Are there any joys or prayers you wish to share with the congregation? Bernita. For Bernita's cousin Earl, who grew up in this congregation, is living in Florida currently, is falling for an unknown reason. So prayers for, for him as they're figuring this all out. Christine. So greetings from our brother and sister, Dick and Shirley, who, well, send their greetings. They were in quarantine as Shirley had to do, had some dental work, but they're not currently in that, but are waiting for that time when we can go visit them in person. I'm waiting that too. I really miss having Dick sitting over here every Sunday. Prayers for Becky's sister, Robin, who's having Wednesday uh, surgery on Wednesday to remove a cancer tumor. Uh, but from what she has told me, doctors saying very positive things about this. It should go very well. All right, Gail, go ahead and then go to Mark. So your daughter-in-law, Ashley, she's getting better, and she's going to be adding an extra day to her schedule at work, which is, that's another major improvement. Happy to hear. See that last little bit? Okay, so our brother Mark is going to see the surgeon tomorrow to lock in exactly when and how the surgery is going to proceed. And Mark, our, our prayers continue with you. I saw at least two more hands, I think. 
Thank you from our sister Josie for all the cards and I'm guessing some phone calls as well uh, for, from everyone here, especially the women who have been so on top of that. Well, if you will join us as we listen to the music and enter into a time of worship.
if you'll pray with me. God, when an enemy attacked Israel, he did so in the hills, thinking you were weak there and was proved wrong. So he attacked in the valleys, thinking you were weak there. But he again was proved wrong. He found the truth that we all know, that you are God and the valleys and the hills, on land and ocean, in this moment and all others. We easily forget that in moments of crisis, that you are still with us and that our trust should be in you and not the machinations of people or the weapons we and they carry. We pray that your will is done, that you turn the hearts and minds of our neighbors, ourselves, and our leaders towards you and the way you taught us to live. You are God in our moments of joy and sadness, in peace and in strife. You are steady when trust has become a scarce resource. Bolster our hearts, soothe our minds, and hold our spirits. We ask, gracious healer, that you hear our prayers for those in our lives who need your presence especially for healing, for holding. We ask for Earl, for Robin, for Ashley, for Mark, and all those we hold quietly up to you in our silent prayer. We thank you, God. We thank you that all the good things in our lives for healed bodies, for friendship, for presence of others in our lives. We thank you for our sister Josie. We thank you for Ashley's ongoing recovery. We thank you for Dick and Shirley. We thank you for all those things we hold silently to you. In the name of the Son, who was and is and will be again. Amen. Good morning. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder 
tell me I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder Thy power throughout the universe displays Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee How great thou art, how great thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee how great thou art, how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God his Son not sparing sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that in the cross my burden but gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation and take me home what joy shall fill my heart then i shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my god how great thou art then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. 
How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Thank you, Mike. So today I'm starting a new series, working through the book of Mark. And yeah, we'll start there. Our first reading comes from the opening of the book. Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15. the beginning of the good news about the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead to you who will prepare your way, a voice of one cry, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothes made of camel's hair and a belt of leather about his waist. He ate, wild, he ate locust and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with the water, with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tested by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Blessed is the word of God. So if you've ever attended one of my Bible study sessions as we got started in a new book, you'll know that I always start by doing a little bit of background information into whatever book a little bit about the author, about the situation. I felt I couldn't jump into Mark like this without doing a little bit of that. Because, well, okay, every gospel is unique. But you got to point out the uniqueness of that particular gospel. And the first thing you may notice about Mark is Mark is short. Not your, your average, but you know what I mean. <laughs> the gospel of Mark is short. And I know I might be jumping back and using he sometimes when referring to Mark, the writer, and it sometimes when I'm referring to Mark, the gospel. So just bear with that. I know I flip around a bit. 
See, Mark is short. It doesn't really care about what happens before Jesus starts his ministry. And when it gets to the end of the book, Mark really doesn't care much about what happens after Jesus' ministry, beyond the fact that Mark wants to make sure you know there was a resurrection. But most notably, Mark lacks structure, like literary structure. If I were to call a whole bunch of biblical scholars in here, and I ask them to tell me about each of the gospel's structures, they go, oh, well, that's easy. Matthew has these five big sermons, and it slowly works from how one lives their life in this world towards the second coming, and then at the end, what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And those five sermons move the whole book along. Luke, on the other hand, is a travel story. You start in Nazareth, and as Jesus teaches and builds up his, his base and builds up what the kingdom of God is, you're slowly moving towards Jerusalem and the inevitable fight that happens between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humans. John is all concerned about his seven signs that point to Jesus being the logos, the word of God. But then you have Mark, and they would probably either all disagree about what the structure of Mark is, or they would just shrug their shoulders and go, we don't know. There's never been a consensus. Yeah, there are some structures in there that most people can agree on. There's a major change that happens about halfway through the book, but that's about it. Mark just seems focused on telling these short stories about Jesus one after the other. Okay, that's, to be fair, that's what all the Gospels do. They all tell you the story of Jesus by having one story after the other. But the structures of the other three all point towards particular aspects of Jesus. They want you to understand who Jesus was through their eyes. In short, everyone has an angle even gospel writers. So why doesn't Mark? Why doesn't Mark have his angle? There's a couple reasons, actually, at least theories. First off, Mark's a bit of an amateur compared to the other three writers. From what we can tell, Matthew and John are educated scholars, theologians. Luke is a doctor. Mark knows his Hebrew scriptures, He's a devout follower of the way, but he lacks the same level of formal education as the others. I mean, first off, it's simple because we see the way he writes in terms of lack of structure, and, and there's no transitional material or very little. You know, when you have one paragraph and you move on to the next, it's nice to have things tying together. But for Mark, he just has the end of a story and then the beginning of the next. There's nothing in between. Even the Greek he uses is simple. Mark is almost completely in the present tense. When you open up your Bible and you read it, that's because the, the authors or the translators have actually reset Mark to read more comfortably in the past tense. But Jesus isn't going to do something. Jesus is doing something. Jesus didn't do something. Jesus is currently doing something. And it's written in this particular way of writing in Greek that is like sticking an exclamation point everywhere. 
It's happening now, and it's happening with a lot of excitement. And Mark just doesn't worry about giving you all the context. Partially, I think, because Mark thinks everyone already knows the context of what's going on, but also because he just wants you to focus on Jesus. Reading Mark is like reading a seventh grade a seventh grader's paper, and then comparing it to Matthew, Luke, and John is like reading a senior in college's paper. There's just a different level of experience and education. But that's all right, because Mark is just less concerned about all those things that concern Matthew, Luke, and John. He doesn't care if the pieces don't fit perfectly. He doesn't care that Jesus has to back up everything Jesus says with um, Scripture, a thing that Matthew never quite gets off, gets away from. He also thinks you can just understand his teaching by hearing it. He doesn't need all the parables of Luke. He doesn't need all the philosophy of John. He just wants you to hear When I read Mark, I can't help but think of Jesus as the Lone Ranger. And it's all in present tense. Jesus is here. Jesus fixes this problem. Jesus is teaching this lesson. Now Jesus is done, and there goes Jesus. Stay tuned. Next week, same Jesus time, same Jesus channel, where Jesus will come back and do another Jesus thing. That's what reading Mark is like. It's exciting. It's moving. And slowly, story by story, lesson by lesson, Jesus and his message are brought into sharp focus. And the thing is, is Mark's Jesus is not Matthew's, Luke's, or John's. Mark's Jesus is a Messiah that's unapologetically who he is. He doesn't have to explain himself to anyone. He doesn't care what religious and social norms are. If they break with, if they are against what his message is, he just breaks them. This is not the expected Messiah that all of Judaism is waiting for. It's also not the kind of Christ we often look at. You know, there's that famous Solomon painting. You've probably all seen it. If you think of a classic image of Jesus slightly looking up as if he's praying, I think we have one in the basement, a copy of this painting. This isn't that Jesus either. This Jesus is blunt, straight-talking, butt-kicking, defiant Jesus, an unexpected Messiah. Now, when he appears in Mark, he's fully formed, ready to go. The only warning we get is that here is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the anointed one. Anointed one is Hebrew, Messiah, and Greek, Christ. Mark tells us that this is the gospel of God's anointed one. And the next line is the proclamations from Malachi and Isaiah and an introduction to our favorite wild man prophet, John the Baptist. Now, John is a divisive character in his own day, and he continued to be a divisive character long after his death. Josephus, the Jewish-Roman historian, thought John was a big enough influence and a big enough deal that he included it in his histories, which was about 60 years after 
um, John's death, which is about 20, 30 years maybe after Mark has written his gospel. John was a well-known outsider, even by the Romans, who lived on the other side of the Mediterranean from him. Now, uh, sorry, I lost my... John was the well-known outsider. He just didn't care what other people thought of him. He didn't care that his message was eventually going to lead to his downfall and execution at the hands of Herod. Of course, John's end wasn't caused by his main message, was repent, the end is near. It was his pointed and repeated criticism of powerful political leaders and their sins. So Mark opens by connecting Jesus to John. Now, this is not the beatific babe born in Bethlehem that we get in Luke and Matthew, or the logos made in flesh. No, this is not the expected warrior king of David. Mark's Jesus is a force beyond human comprehension, like the God that once met people in the wilderness and cared for them and taught them. That God is now coming out of the wilderness, fully formed and going to lay down the truth like Elijah on steroids. But everyone's in for the surprise. Even John, who's his gateway into the ministry. I mean, we have to go back to John. John's unconventional. He was born the son of a priest. Do you know what happens to sons of priests? They become priests. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's how the priesthood goes on in Israel. You were born into it. But instead, he's so disgusted by what he sees happening in the priesthood and the other religious groups of Judea that he goes out into the wilderness to preach against them. Mark spends just enough time to tell us that he dressed simply and in a way like Elijah in a hair shirt and a leather belt and that he relies on providence for his food. Now, Elijah is a prophet of the Old Testament, and probably, well, the second most powerful prophet after Elisha and Jesus in the entire Bible. He came to turn Israel back to God when the rot of idol worship had become powerful and the people had lost their way. John and Elijah had no problem with being relentless with those they saw who were abusing their power, engaging openly with sin, or just simply being hypocritical. They both called on people to repent and turn back to God. Now, John was also just as harsh with those who were even philosophically close to him. He accepted little room for deviation, you couldn't go out of what he understood as being the right way. And this actually leads to John not really liking Jesus that much. It would be a couple decades, a lot of decades, a century or so until John became an accepted character within the Christian canon. I mean, just look at Matthew 9 and 11. John sends his people out to question Jesus because he doesn't like what Jesus is saying. He doesn't like what Jesus is doing. John expected a lot more fire and brimstone, a lot more righteousness. And John didn't see it. 
He may have been unwavering in his devotion to God, but he was still human. His own preconceived notions of who this Messiah was supposed to be got in his way. This whole nation was waiting for a Messiah, and they failed to recognize Jesus. Many people are waiting for Moses to return, to lead them out of this impression to a new promised land. The Essenes were living in the wilderness looking for a new Elijah who would come out and rebuke evil. The Zealots wanted their warrior king, David, or maybe Judas Maccabee to come back. The Sadducees, the temple folk, they wanted a Samuel, a great priest, a great judge. And the Pharisees expected a new minor prophet, though it would have been a major prophet, someone who worked to live the law perfectly and calls out the sins of the nation around him. They were all right. Jesus embodies the minor prophets, Samuel, David, Elijah, Moses, but he refuses to do it their way. Instead, he looks at the Pharisees and criticizes them for their sins, for turning the law into an idol. He judges the Sadducees. He bends the sword of the zealots into plowshares. He engages in the world instead of rejecting it as the scenes would wish. And he led his people out of a land of oppression and into the kingdom of heaven. And he turned to his friend John and reminded him it was God's decision on how forgiveness, grace, and love are extended, not John's. Jesus did everything expected of him, but in a way counter to what everyone wanted. Jesus appears in this way as a warning to everyone who likes the status quo they're not going to like Jesus. And it's a warning to those who await change, that Jesus is going to change things Jesus' way, not theirs. We're no different. We like to believe that if Jesus was to come into our place of work, if Jesus was to come into our house or even here into worship, that we would recognize who he is and Jesus would be happy with what Jesus saw. You know, it's that old story slash pastor's gimmick where the pastor invites a, a fellow preacher to come in and has them dress up as a beggar and then come up and deliver the sermon. You know, it's a challenge, a challenge to the congregation's assumptions about who is God's servants, about who speaks God's word. But so often those challenges disappear as soon as we see someone we really don't like or really turned off by. I mean, we like to be challenged only as long as our basic assumptions of how the world works are proved correct. Because after all, that's not really a homeless guy. It really was a guest speaker who was just dressed up. But that person over there, that person really is inferior That person is really poor, dealing with a mental disorder, or simply we just disagree with their views. 
that person doesn't make us feel safe. And so our assumptions are challenged and therefore they lack the holy within them. How often do you think that's how the people who heard Jesus preach and teach felt? Jesus wasn't there to make them feel safe. Jesus was there to make them uncomfortable and to push them towards repentance and faith. Mark says, stop. You don't get to decide what the message is. You don't get to decide if the gospel is comfortable for you. I would even add that the gospel is even meant to be uncomfortable for you. Jesus is defiant, defiant of what your own wishes are. Jesus tells you, love your enemies. Forgive those who wrong you. Seek forgiveness for those you've wronged. Turn yourself from material to spiritual. Be unjudging of others. Accept a God that comes out of the wilderness to live like you, to feel pain like you, to serve the very beings that God created, to die for them, to live for them. Mark is pointing us to a Christ that pushes us in Christ's way. It's not the God that comes out of our own culture, out of our own society. It's a God that comes from the outside and pushes us to be outside in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. As we go out this week, I pray you're a little uncomfortable, that God pushes you to see things you weren't ready to see. And I pray that we are able, as individuals and as a group, to rise to, to Jesus' challenge, to be lights in this world, and to put our foundation firmly in him. Thank you. Amen.